Well, I've been looking forward to our passage today and getting to preach this passage uh, because I believe it to be one of James's more, um, more one of his more encouraging sections in his letter. Um, you know, I'm not having to start one of my points with beware. <laughs> so it's, it's a joy to, to preach all of the counsel of the word of God. But this, I've really enjoyed this study and, and by God's grace, be able to clearly communicate it to you. Well, we once again get to see the apostles' fatherly care for that scattered sheep among the dispersion in this text. Uh, they've been suffering Suffering at the hands of the world in, in a world system that truly hates them, that pursues them. Hates them because they hate their Lord and Savior, the Lord and Savior. James's word to his audience in our text today is be patient. Be patient. Now, James is not some stoic philosopher who refuses in his counsel to these people, to, refuses to acknowledge the rea reality that surrounds them. They need a good reason to be patient while they're suffering at the same time. Just being told to be patient, it's not enough. Although God's command is enough. But he is so full of mercy, as we'll see and talk about today. James's word to them is to be patient. We need that good reason to, as well to understand it. When these troubles that come upon us, that came upon them, you know, for many, we find that, you know, laughter is the best medicine for what ails you. You know, from those things that bring you down, laughter is a good thing. But there is something that is much, much better then laughter to cure what saddens you or, or frightens you or angers you. Something much better it is the truth. The truth is much better. The truth, in fact, that James in our passage today expounds, which is partly, again, why I am so excited to share this with you. We need to know. We need to know more than, than just feeling. We must know that everything's going to be okay. We want to know this intellectually. We want to be convinced of it. Because when you don't have this, this knowledge, this, this conviction of, that everything's going to be okay in Christ, it's like you're living with blinders on living with blinders on, and you're trying to make yourself believe a lie about the sad state of things around you. You know, that relentless pursuit of the enemy, and it is relentless to castigate us, to demonize the truth, to seek to take away God-given rights. It's overwhelming when those pressures are upon us. It's daunting. We must know it's going to be okay. Well, the truth is that we, we have little understanding how, how truly difficult the Christians that James writes to, original readers here, we have a difficult understanding of what it is that they suffered. 
We suffer indeed. I'm not taking any of that away. We don't suffer to the extent that they had. You know, the rich and the powerful were impoverishing them. The laws favored the rich and the powerful. And I know we can see aspects of that today in the, in the way bureaucracy comes into things these days. But for them, it was so much, so much very more real. How could they escape it? How could they get away with it? You know, to lose one's ability, for example, to provide for his family sensibly because one's man's selfish interests, that was a common enough occurrence in their lives. The rich wanting something that a poor man had. Can you believe it? Indeed. Now, there are instances of this today. But we know very little of the suffering that the church in the first century had to endure. And yet, God's command, his encouragement to them is, of course, the same to us that we need to hear. Things are getting worse around us. Our culture, more and more depraved. If you're not already there, Please turn in your Bibles to our passage for today, which is James 5. And we're going to be on verses 7 through 11. James writes, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. In our text today, James acknowledged the suffering of the saints and so commands them to maintain a purposeful patience while remaining steadfast and waiting expectantly on the Lord to return and to right all wrongs and judge the wicked. We see that in our text today. We see James answering the question, how should the church, how should we be patient in suffering? Well, the passage suggests three ways that we may be purposeful in our patience. First, pursue a purposeful patience in waiting expectantly for the Lord's return. That is clear in verse 7. Waiting expectantly for the Lord's return. Number two, we are told, commanded rather, establish a purposeful patience in peace. It will be done in peace if it's done rightly. You see that verses 8 and 9. 
And then thirdly, resemble. We are to resemble the purposeful patience of the prophets and the steadfastness of Job. And we see that in verses 10 and 11. So, my first point, an application really. Pursue, brothers, a purposeful patience in waiting expectantly for the Lord's return. Again, James writes, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. The entirety of this passage, verses 7 through 11, is in support of the command given here at the beginning. Be patient. Be patient. And the command is given in response to what we last time covered, the rich and the powerful, what they're doing to them. We cannot, we must not separate the context from the immediately preceding argument that James laid out in verses 1 through 6. That the rich and the powerful in the world that favors the cruel and the deceiving, they have fattened themselves in the day of slaughter. They're living it up on the backs of God's people in many ways, all the while condemning, the text says, condemning and murdering the righteous person. It is to such a righteous person that James commands, be patient. For how long? How long must I be patient, Lord, until the coming of the Lord? Until Christ returns, the second advent. And notice, brothers, how James didn't say until the coming of the Lord or until you die. James's focus is on the blessedness of Christ's return. In many ways, brothers and sisters, we sang about that this morning. You know, William Cooper's song. You know, this, this no more sin looking forward to. We may very well die before the Lord returns, but even in death, the return of the Lord, it consummates our eschatological dreams and hopes. We are encouraged to wait expectantly for this, brothers. So to reiterate my point here, James commands a patience that is also purposeful. Why do I say purposeful? Well, it's to ultimately to understand the purpose that's being underscored here in the, in the passage, and, and we see it more clearly in verse 11, it is found in the purpose of the Lord. That purpose is what energizes the saint to keep the command of the Lord to be patient. Now, this is, is something that doesn't come natural to us. Does patience come natural to you, parent? Does it? No, it doesn't. We want to retaliate. We want vengeance. We want our point of view to come across and them to accept it as if it were the gospel. And we want it now. 
We want it now, don't we? The patience James commands here, it must be pursued. It must be pursued. It doesn't come naturally. Pursued with prayer, pursued with an acknowledgement, a heartfelt belief from the heart that the Lord knows better than we do. It's called trust. Which means we pursue a patience in waiting. And James helps his readers grasp this, what waiting looks like, by giving us the illustration of the farmer. I, I love it when the text gives the illustration for us. You know, the farmer of James's day w- was not part of a conglomerate food company. They didn't have working capital loans that supported their family from one crop sale to the next. Of course, they didn't, they didn't have the modern irrigation system that we have today. In James's day, even more so, if a man was impatient, then he better not be a farmer. The farmer planted his his carefully saved seeds in hopes of bringing in a harvest to support his family. In the meantime, they lived on small rations, spacing it out so they wouldn't run out of it before the next crop comes in, probably going with less near the end of that cycle. As last season's crops start to dwindle, the farmer waited He waited for an expected future event. He did not demand. He did not demand to see the fruit before the crop ripened, before it was ready, before the harvest was available. You can see how he would probably consider that that expected harvest to be that precious fruit of the earth that our text speaks of waiting on it like this so precious to him his family his his family's life they depended on it and his patience had to last until the early and late rains certainly not a job for the weak at heart being described here no no crop appears overnight and who can control the weather you know that weather that we experienced this week in and out from nowhere who can control the weather? You know, too much rain could prove as just as disastrous as too little rain to the farmer. Wearsby, Warren Wearsby notes that uh, Jewish farmers would plow and sow in what to us are the autumn months. The early rain would soften the soil. The latter rain would come in the early spring, our, our February, March time frame. And it would help make that harvest mature. The farmer had to to wait many weeks for his seed to produce that fruit. You know, why did he wait so long? It's because he knew the value of that expected crop. Again, that life-giving value, it was precious to him. Such a good example to us in understanding patience and its preciousness of the object of our faith and what we're waiting on in his return. You know, that farmer could withstand the hard work and the waiting 
when the going got tough. He endured. He had to. Church, God is producing a harvest in our own lives, in your life. He will winnow the wheat from the chaff, separate, burn the chaff in your heart, that dross, to prepare such a harvest, the coming of the Lord. The Lord, he desires the fruit of the Spirit to grow and to produce much fruit and good works in your life. To do this, our loving Father in heaven will till and sow trials in your life. It is his way. This is his way. And it comes by bearing a cross. Before a cross that we bear before our enemies, before our family, and our own private crosses. So we wait expectantly. Expectantly. We endure until the Lord returns. One of my favorite Puritans, Thomas Manton, describes such patience as, quote, a sense of afflictions born without complaining and of injuries accepted without revenge. This is the type of patience James is talking about. Long-suffering is patience extended until it finishes its work. It has a purpose. There is work that the Lord is doing here. In other words, this patience, it endures honorably. It's not riddled with self-pity or envy. And it has its eye on the goal. That goal being taken up by Christ and rejoicing in his salvation. That's what we need to be reminded of, brothers and sisters. The patience of the Christian, by the way, it, it doesn't look like the world's view of patience. You know, so often the wisdom of the world would espouse a patience that truly is little more than a complacency. It doesn't care. Or some stoic callousness. Manton, Thomas Manton, he argues that there can be no patience where there is no sense of evil. There can be no patience where there's no sense of evil. This is because true patience that pleases the Lord is a virtue. Because it endures the evil. Pressing in on the believer. Christianity is not complacent. It is militant. And it does not abrogate feelings. It regulates them. We talked about that. Manton, he continues saying, quote, world people, worldly people put off what they cannot put away and so are not patient but are stupid and careless. The world's patience it ignores the Holocaust that's happening on the other side of the town. It's callous. It's complacent. 
Don't confuse the two with patience. So what does this mean? How do we reconcile a patience which pleases Christ, but does not just simply become complacent, where we're almost tempted to go in trying to deal with all these things? I just got to turn it off and not care anymore. How do we do this? How do we not become callous regarding the evil that's around us? That's a, a good question that we should be putting to ourselves. In light of the suffering at the hands of the rich and powerful of the world, James, he wasn't implying that his readers would take vengeance upon their oppressors. Deuteronomy 32 Verse 35, cites God saying, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Paul, he quotes this later in Romans 12, 19, saying, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. James knew this. The rest of the answer on how we reconcile this how we remain patient but not complacent. I believe we'll see just a little bit in a minute here as we get to verse 10 and how the prophets, how the prophets handled it. Remember, they're given to us as an example in this text. Our, my second point here, the second application we have from our text is we need to establish a purposeful patience and peace. Establish a purposeful patience and peace. Verses 8 and 9 read, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Like the farmer who waits expectantly for the coming of good fruit. James commands his readers that they also to be, are in the likewise, to be patient. You also be patient. For the same reason. Because the Lord's coming. The Lord of the harvest is coming. But again, how are they to go about being patient? Because it's not a passive thing. To be the kind of patient person that God desires. It is a patience that is built upon Christ. And knowing him. Believing and trusting him and what he has said. It is rooted in the fear of the Lord. This patience. The patience that James desires in us. It's coupled in a growing understanding of God's ways, of his precepts, his commands, his promises. That, brothers and sisters, this knowledge, this growth in knowledge that we're called to, informs your patience. It informs your patience that you may trust in these truths. Otherwise, what will your patience be grounded in? It's almost as foolish as the person who espouses, I have faith in my faith. You've got to have faith. 
and faith. That's nonsense. We need an object of faith to trust in. We need to know these promises, these precepts, these commands, the truth in God's word that build up our patience. The longer I live as a Christian, the more I have come to understand that God will continually show me, and not just me, but all his saints, he will continue to show us our very great need of him. And by God's grace, we will more and more acknowledge our dependence on him. For everything, absolutely everything, and every moment in our lives. It's a mercy, that is. It's where Paul is rejoicing in his weakness because he is depending upon Christ for that strength. Now, the hardest trials that we deal with in our lives where this, this strength is needed, it's something James has been talking about throughout his letter, those, those hardest trials often come at the hands of those closest to us, doesn't it? Those who know us best. Verses 8 and 9 talks about this. You know, James's readers were in such a miserable state that they were easily at each other's throats, easily provoked. You know, close pressures on them had made them very jumpy and quick to take offense. And it absolutely had to stop. Divisions were going to be created. So James focused on the imminency of Christ's return as the solution to their problem. For Christ's imminent return meant that Christ, that the great judge of all, he was right at the door, standing at the door. It's the reason why Paul warns the Galatians, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted why did he have to say that because as those pressures are coming down on us we are tempted in a sinful way as we reach out to our brother to to be provoked into sin ourselves that was happening in the church there that james was ministering to Easily provoked. They were, as the text says, grumbling against one another. James means the kind of grumbling that, that arises from a, a sinful cause such as discontentment. Particularly discontentment at providence. An untrusting despair. Or a bitterness. Wanting vengeance. Or even being envious of someone who just seems to have suffered less than you. I'm appalled at myself at how we can be so unchristian at times, so uh, easily provoked, so selfish. It, sin is a humbling thing, isn't it? 
One commentator wrote, quote, if anyone's condition is more tolerable, we are apt to complain enviably and to say there is no sorrow like my sorrow. And fretting against God makes us angry with men. Isn't that the truth? When you are complaining to God, how you're also angry with men. Something had to be done about this in that, in that body. Something has to be done in our own lives. Now, something of the sort is what James heard or, or witnessed among them. Things he already covered early, in earlier chapters, you know, the quarrels, the, the fighting that was going on, the bitter jealousy. And that passage about taming the tongue. The patience James was desiring in them was one that was established in Christ and so done in peace. At the end of James's section on the taming of the tongue, in chapter 3, he explains that heavenly wisdom, what it looks like. And according to the hierarchical order that he put there, and there is an order that he puts there, Godly wisdom, he says, is first pure. The next thing he says is it's peaceable. He says in chapter 3, verse 18, quote, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And naturally, this reminds us, as I'm sure it reminded James, of Jesus' words of blessed are the peacemakers. In our passage today, in verse 9, James, he brings up a former topic that he addressed in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, about not speaking evil against one another, this grumbling. He says, for if you do, you will find yourself standing in judgment over, over them, over him or her. That there's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. And he is standing at the door. Beloved, our grumbling against one another invites the righteous judgment of God against us. Understanding that we are one body in Christ. When we do this, when we grumble, we are marring ourselves along with Christ himself as one body in Christ. It is something that he cannot ignore. As he described the judge, as James described the judge who is standing at the door, this is meant to encourage a readiness in us. If we know the judge is standing right at the door, you're going to quickly clean up the room. Make it look presentable. There's a readiness being conveyed here. You know, our hearts are to be established, to be stabilized, you could say, by faith and patience. To be made ready. Ready like we read in Matthew 25 about the parable of the ten virgins. You know, you read that parable. There were five who were wise and five who were foolish. And you could say perhaps the wise ones made certain that they were ready for the bridegroom by being established 
and enough oil for their lamps. Like the bridegroom's imminent coming to them, so is the nearness of Jesus, our bridegroom, in his return. But, beloved, don't be discouraged. It's, it's tempting to be discouraged at this in Christ's tarrying, as the Lord tarries, as we often say. It's important to understand this nearness that James is conveying here in the appropriate temporal framework of a, uh, a salvation history, as one commentator put it. Christ's second advent is the next thing that will occur in Christ's calendar of events. The next thing in the redemptive historical chain of events. The next thing, brothers and sisters. In the chapter that closes out the canon of Scripture in, in Revelation 22, John writes three times, he writes, that Christ's coming is near. I want you to just consider something here. Consider the amazing events that happened in church history 2,000 years before Christ's first coming, before his death and resurrection, the 2,000 years that preceded the cross. All the lives of the patriarchs, including all the history of the nation of Israel, happened in the 2,000 years leading up to Christ's first advent. It's 2023. I'm not one of those, this church is not espousing the Lord is going to, I'm going to give you a date that he's coming back on this certain, certain day. Christ didn't even know when he was here on earth, when he was going to return. We don't know, but it is near brothers and sisters. It is near Kent Hughes. He argues that we Christians tragically impoverish our souls when we fail to ponder the nearness of his return and fail to let it be a joy that carries us through our sanctification here on earth. Furthermore, he says, if logic be worth anything, we are much nearer Christ's return than the apostles were. Much nearer. And yet, they so often wrote and pondered that blessed future event. Do we ponder it? Hughes often, he noted as well, he said that this is something to consider about how often these disciples of Christ, the apostles, wrote and thought about it. He said the New Testament contains over 300 references to Christ's return. And that's about one of every 13 verses. Take his word for it. The apostles in the early church also had to deal with the critics and the skeptics regarding the nearness of Christ's return, they had to deal with it. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read a quick passage here, verses 3 through the first part of 9. 2 Peter 3, 3 through 9. The apostle writes, Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. 
they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of the God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, he writes, that with the Lord one day is a, a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. That was James, uh, Peter's encouraging words to those whom he wrote regarding waiting for Christ's return. And it is the next thing on Christ's calendar of historical redemptive events. The imminence of Christ's return makes its demands upon us. We must be patient peacemakers because we have hope. We must be prepared. Be prepared. Peter wrote, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We need to discipline our spiritual lives and be in regular prayer as we expectantly wait. Are you ready? As he stands at the door, are you ready? If you are not a believer, then the call to preparation is even more compelling. It's even more compelling. The poor the bridegroom said in Matthew 24. Now that's, I want to read that real quick in Matthew 24, verses 36 through 44. Christ is speaking here. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels or heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of, the man, son of man. Then, Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not left his house, left it to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And when he comes to save his people, he will be coming to judge the world and its people. Which brings me to my final point. The need to be steadfast. We are to resemble the purposeful patience of the prophets and the steadfastness of Job. In verses 10 and 11, it reads, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. 
You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, our God is compassionate and merciful. Surely the Lord is mindful that we are but dust. He knows we need heavy hand-holding to obey his command to be patient here. We need his help, especially when the going gets tough. So he has graciously provided the examples of the kind of patience that we should have in the prophets of the Old Testament and on how we should be steadfast in the example of Job. Now, In these verses, James addresses his readers as brothers in this whole passage, as brothers. And this is the third time he does it in verses 10 and 11. And note from this, his, his care for them, his desire for them to grow in Christ-likeness. Brothers, hear me on this, he says. And it's the fourth time in this passage he mentions the word patience. They are to behold the patience of the prophets and Job's steadfastness. Now, their suffering, their steadfast patience was not in vain. They must, and they needed to know that. And for our sakes, we had the privilege that they often did not have in their lifetime, and I'm speaking of the prophets, to see the good purpose of the Lord in their patient endurance. We get to read about their experiences and see how each and every time the Lord was full of compassion and mercy, I challenge you to find one time where God ever failed them. You won't find it. We must also point out that James is calling out of Job's his perseverance. It's not from an undeserved conclusion here. Uh, you know, when we read the book of Job, we could be going, uh, is he the, really the patient guy that we should be looking to here? And he did complain bitterly to God. He did. And it was not right of him to do so. But he never abandoned his faith. In the midst of his incomprehension of what was happening to him, he clung to God and he continued to hope in him throughout the entire book of Job. Thus, we are to learn and witness and learn from his steadfastness, his endurance. In studying the experience of Job, it's important to remember that Job did not know what was going on behind the scenes. We have the privilege in those opening chapters to know, uh, you know how Satan approached the Lord and accused Job. Job didn't know that went on. Job didn't understand what was happening to him in that context. What he understood was his friends were accusing him of things that he was innocent of. That's what he heard. They accused him of being a sinner and a hypocrite. They said, there must be some terrible sin in your life or God would not have permitted such suffering. No, part of his suffering that he went through was not getting to know, understand why he is suffering. The purpose for it. Why was this happening to me? He wanted to know. 
He wanted to know that. He knew God's purposes through his life as he was faithful in many ways. Job depended upon God in many ways, even though he was still miserable. Even though he was miserable. Job is really an excellent example of this steadfastness because it's a heart that he had that was established in faith. Only then could he bear a cross that was given to him with such discouraging and condemning friends around him and the feeling of the abandonment of God that he must have felt, that he did feel. Great example of steadfastness for us. The prophets, says James, are examples of both suffering and patience. You know, the more, all the more reason needing a steadfastness and endurance because it's not just the patience, it's the suffering with it that they endured. Again, Thomas Manton writes, quote, We would never have heard of Job if he had not been brought so low. Affliction makes saints eminent. Job's poverty made him rich in honor and esteem. He was famous for a misery, but just as famous for steadfastness. And all of his various expressions of his steadfast faith, two stand out. And they really go throughout the entire book of Job. And that is his putting God forward and humbling of himself. He had good thoughts of God and he had low thoughts of himself. He, he, definitely, he definitely proclaimed and declared his innocence, but he also knew. He knew his sin. Speaking of the prophets, in Matthew 5, 10, verses 10 through 12, Je Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, what makes the prophets such a good example of patience for us? For one thing, they were in the will of God. They're a great example because while they were in the will of God, they still suffered. That's often something that perplexes us. They were preaching in the name of the Lord, as our text says, with the authority of the Lord. And yet they were persecuted. They weren't complacent at all. As they waited on the Lord, they were not complacent to bring about prophecy that some of them didn't get to see. You ever think about that sometimes when you're reading about these prophecies that they had? And we understand that the truth of what a prophet proclaims is going to be in the fact that it comes true. Some of them didn't get to see that. How did they endure? They're a great example for us. They weren't complacent. When they saw evil, they boldly spoke against it. But they did not seek vengeance for themselves. 
The devil, our great enemy, tells the believer that his suffering is the result of, it must be the result of some sin that you've committed or due to your unfaithfulness. And yet, your suffering may very well be because of your faithfulness. That's what we see in the lives of the prophets. Don't be discouraged, brothers and sisters. As Scripture routinely tells us, be encouraged by that very thing when you're suffering for the name of Christ. Paul writes, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We must never think that obedience automatically produces ease and pleasure. Often, often when we as Christians approach the book of Proverbs, we're confused. We're, com- we're confused, you know, thinking that if we live in a way that obeys the the precepts being declared here, then the good things that the Proverbs give as a result, that I should expect those things for myself. But the precepts that we read of in the Proverbs and their favorable resorts, results are how things should be according to God's, pres- both his prescriptive, his, his preceptive will, how he prescribes it but not necessarily by how he's decreed things to be, his decretive will. God's prescriptive will, for example, is for you not to sin. And yet, brothers and sisters, you do. His decretive will is that you and me and you will be saved. And for those of us whose names are written in the book of life, that will indeed happen. His declared will was that the sun would come up in the morning. His prescriptive will is that I would rejoice in that fact. Why am I talking about these aspects of God's will here? Because, again, we must never think that obedience automatically produces ease and pleasure. Solomon is responsible for the far majority of the text that we read in the book of Proverbs. But he's also responsible for the book of Ecclesiastes. There we read the reality of things in this fallen world. The righteous suffering while the wicked prosper. God is still on his throne, actually decreeing by the counsel of his own will the very evils that befall you. just as he did with the faithful prophets and as he did with Job. But you, beloved, you have seen the purpose of the Lord. You know of his unfathomable love that he saves undeserving sinners like you and me. And he makes them his own. We are adopted. This is done through misery and agony and the utter loneliness of the cross of Christ. All done through Christ. The people of the world are miserable in their happiness, but the children of God are happy in their misery. That can only happen because of what we know to be true. God has made us understand and know. This this suffering, this righteous suffering, is a kind of grace that God gives to us. 
Over and over again in Scripture, it testifies to the blessedness of the faithful believer that's being refined by these things. That's why James, at the beginning of his letter, tells us to, to consider it joy. He keeps that message going on. God has a very good design, which includes our suffering, brothers and sisters. James acknowledged the suffering of the saints, and he commanded them to maintain this purposeful patience while remaining steadfast and waiting expectantly on the Lord to return, to right all things, to make these wrong things become right, and to judge the wicked. He explained how we may be patient in suffering in this letter, in this passage. Uh, we pursue it with patience. We wait expectantly for the Lord to come. We establish our hearts in peace, fully believing that all wrongs will be set right by King Jesus. When? At the right time, that's when. When he returns. Could be tomorrow, could be today. Lastly, we are given the prophets and Job as examples that we may resemble in our own struggles. You know, a few of us have suffered as some of the prophets. And none of us has suffered as Job has. But we have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And that's the encouragement we have, brothers, in this passage. Why we wait expectantly? Because the Lord is compassionate and merciful. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench, our Lord. I want to close here, and I know I'm out of time. I want to close here with some insight from a book that I've been reading. Um, it's called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. We see here in this, in this book that he's writing that how God gives us a view of the heart of Christ. I'm reminded of that in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 30. I'll read that text. Christ says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is, right, is light. He is full of compassion and mercy. His purposes are. Ortland, he writes, quote, When the Bible speaks of the heart, it isn't speaking of just our emotional life, but of the central animating animating center of all that we do. The heart is not a part of who we are, but the center of who we are. We do the things we do because of the nature and condition of our heart. Always. It happens like that. Which is why we are told to keep it with all vigilance. And when Jesus reveals a picture of his heart to us, as he does in Matthew, that I just read in that text, what we find is this gentle and lowly. Christ is amazingly accessible to you. We have but to open up to him. Who is the we? It's all who labor in our heavy burden. And he will give you rest. This rest is a gift from Christ. 
It's not a transaction. We just need to open up to him. Receive Christ. Whether you are laboring, you know, getting at it, working hard, producing for the kingdom of Christ here on earth, or whether you are heavy laden, brothers, you know, weighed down by the circumstances that are beyond your control. In this, we learn patience. Beloved, remember what you have read and believed in the Bible. Remember what you've seen with your own eyes. The good purposes of the Lord. Establish your patience in the knowledge of these things. For our God is full of compassion and mercy. His heart is gentle and lonely, lowly. And when you go to Christ for mercy and compassion in your suffering, you go to him. You go to him with the flow of his own deepest desires. Not against them. 